Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is David Freeman. Uh, I'm the editorial director of NBC News Mock, and I'm also the moderator for today's panel, uh, which is entitled Self-Driving Cars, Pros and Cons for the Public's Health. Uh, so our panelists today are, to my immediate right, Jay Winston, who is the Frank Stanton Director of the Center for Health Communication at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Associate Dean for Health Communication. Uh, John Leonard, Vice President of Research at the Toyota Research Institute and Deborah, Deborah Herzman, President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Safety Council. And also we have uh, joining us remotely is Peter Sweatman, who is the co-founding principal at Kavita, which is a consulting firm in California, I believe. Um, so we're streaming live on uh, the websites of the forum and NBC News Mock. We're also streaming on Facebook. Uh, this program will have a brief Q&A at the end. Uh, and you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. Uh, you can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum site right now. So let's dive in. Um, there are reports all over about the, uh, how we're all going to look forward to this incredible world in which there are autonomous vehicles uh, that are interacting smoothly with each other and safely with the environment. And they're going to give us new levels of convenience and safety and save tens of thousands, perhaps, of lives every year. Uh, and we're seeing the beginnings of that world. There are a bunch of companies who are developing autonomous vehicles, as we all know. Uh, and there are, some are running pilot programs in cities across the country. But uh, how accurate are those rosy predictions, especially in light of the um, recent fatal crashes, a couple of recent uh, crashes involving self-driving cars, one Uber and one Tesla? So let's take a look at what happened uh, with a couple of clips from NBC News. This is the first pedestrian death by an autonomous vehicle on a public road. Today, Uber suspending testing of self-driving vehicles in Tempe, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, and Toronto. The company saying, our hearts go out to the victim's family. We're fully cooperating with Tempe police. We are definitely moving much too quickly in terms of getting these things on the road in a location where you have pedestrians, where you have bicyclists, where you have people pushing their children in strollers. Tesla has confirmed that one of its vehicles involved in a fatal crash last week in California was on autopilot right before the accident. Tesla says the 38-year-old driver had received several warnings to put his hands on the wheel before his car slammed into a highway divider. He died at a nearby hospital shortly after the crash. The NTSB is still investigating. So, um, Jay, I wonder if you could talk about that. We see that you know, these investigations, I guess at least some of them are still ongoing. Um, but they do point to these possible safety concerns. And I wonder what, if you can put that in kind of a public health context, what are you thinking about the, the, the safety and the benefits of, of yeah. the technology? I think what we're dealing with now is kind of a combination of hope on the one hand and hype on the other. On, on the ho hope side, I mean, there are about one, an estimated 1.25 million uh, traffic fatalities throughout the world each year and millions more uh, serious life-changing uh, injuries. Uh, so that 
if we could only get those pesty drivers out from behind the wheel, in principle, we could prevent um, all of that uh, mayhem. Uh, on the other hand, um, on the hype side, I think both the media and, uh, and some of the uh, manufacturers and developers have been going a little too far in setting public expectations for what to expect, especially in the short term and in the media, me, medium term. I mean, for, for starters, um, it isn't true that the average person in their garage is likely to have a self-driving car. That's not the business model that most of the companies are pursuing. Rather, they're going to be commercial fleets of self-driving vehicles. There'll be uh, automated uh, taxis without uh, human drivers. There'll be shuttles around college campuses and around particular areas, such as maybe the Sunset Strip or, or uh, in, in uh, likewise, uh, retirement communities, uh, et, et, et cetera. But there's not going to, and, and there will be highly automated vehicles, which is very different from self-driving cars. Uh, pretty soon, actually, we'll have an, a lot of cars on the road uh, that can handle situations like uh, highway uh, driving, especially on divided highways in daylight hours and good weather, et cetera. Uh, but it's going to be a long time before we get far past that. And it'll probably be decades before we have a critical mass of uh, autonomous vehicles uh, on the road. So, Peter, I mean, do you, uh, do you agree with that? Where are we now with the technology? Well, I think of self-driving as the space race of the 21st century. Uh, there's just so much uh, investment from not just the traditional auto companies and their suppliers, but also the big tech companies and a lot of exciting startups. Um, but there, there are different paths to autonomy, and I think it's uh, important, and we have work to do with educating the public better, um, that one path we call chauffeur is, or a level four is, is uh, one uh, definition where the car does all the driving and, you, and the human doesn't really have to intervene at all. And that's the approach that Google and their spin-out Waymo are doing. Uh, and, and in that te technology, um, the car really does all the driving, at least in a limited domain, a li limited area. Um, in what's called a level two system, for example, the Tesla Autopilot or GM Super Cruise, there the, the human has to monitor the, the car. And um, the challenge there is can the human um, pay attention sufficiently, especially as these things get better. Paradoxically, you need to intervene less, and that means you're less watchful to take over. So, um, but the, the a rate of progress has been stunning, and uh, the societal problem of traffic injuries and fatalities is so great that uh, inaction would be criminal. Like, I think we need to um, safety is a great motivator to push this technology, but we just have to figure out the path of how to, to, to do it in a way that maximizes the, the, the benefits for safety um, um, and also increasing mobility for um, the disabled, the elderly, and so forth. So excuse me, I, I, excuse me for confusing before. So uh, let me ask Peter, let me direct a, a question to Peter now. Um, the, the same question to you, where are we now and what's the, what are we looking forward to here? Thank, thank you, David. Um, yeah, I guess the intent of automation is to replace uh, most or all of driver functions, that is perception and control functions exercised by the driver. And I think the point to get straight away is there's a tremendous diversity in the technologies that are being deployed and the situations that they're designed for. 
Um, so if you consider the range of driver actions that may or may not be required, and, and then you think about locations out there in the roadway system, so where these uh, systems operate, we hear about systems that operate in freeway conditions and so on, but could, could for example, uh, a ve a, an automated vehicle uh, navigate roadworks, complicated set of roadworks, something like that. So anyway, there's a fairly orderly approach to this through five levels of automation that have been declared by the SAE. And John already kind of alluded to the top levels there, four and five. And that really means that all driving functions can be performed by the machine uh, most of the time or all of the time. Uh, the interesting thing about it is that under the current federal guidelines for safety evaluation, and it's, this is voluntary, uh, the manufacturer nominates an operational design domain for that, for that product. So there's incredible diversity in a wide range of technologies. That's number one. This kind of rollout is going to occur in stages. We've currently got model deployments and trials. Uh, there are going to be two big phases to think about here. Uh, what I'd call a transition phase when the density of highly automated vehicles is going to be less than 50%. At the moment, it's less than 1%. Um, and then eventually, we'll get to a high-density deployment phase where we have more than 50% deployment. Um, during that transition phase, there's going to be quite a bit of adaptation and possibly countermeasures required. And when we get to full deployment, we're probably going to see design changes in the infrastructure and the way our systems operate. Um, already, the safety dilemma has been mentioned that um, Eventually, this is going to be much, much, much safer, uh, but there could be new risks in the transition phase that we need to deal with. And I would say that the ability to uh, access data, tell us what's going on in real time, uh, are we developing some kind of virus in the system, in our traffic system, that we don't, uh, we're not able to anticipate um, through all this technology? So we need real-time data to keep an eye on that. And I want to give a shout-out to connected technology. Uh, the US DOT has invested more than a billion dollars over the past decade or so or more on so-called V2V and V2I technology. And there's no doubt that highly automated vehicles will also be connected. So I guess to answer your question, David, it's it's early days and there's a huge amount of diverse technology. Okay, well, let, let's go back. We, we, I want to see, uh, John's bought a clip here from what's going on with Toyota. We've got some cars coming around the uh, track um, using the uh, the Guardian technology. So maybe... Could I say something first? Just oh, yeah, go ahead. Go, go. So, so I mentioned earlier the chauffeur and the guard, uh, chauffeur, um, uh, the sort of level four approach and the level two approach. Um, uh, in, the, in the level two system where the car can, can maybe handle 99% of the situation and the human has to monitor it to take over for say the other 1%. Um, that, that, um, the way that's set up, you know, people aren't good at monitoring the technology. But um, th we think there's a third path 
where you have human driving, and this is a bit like current active safety systems, but bringing in the full arsenal of techniques from perception, planning, prediction of, of, of highly automated driving, so that if the human got into a dangerous situation, that the uh, autonomy could take over. So we call this parallel autonomy, or also the sort of the guardian system, with, with the notion that the autonomy is guarding you. And if you could have a car that could stay on the road, could not hit things, could not get hit, you could basically take a big factor, a big um, um, set of accident scenarios away. So we have a video clip of just a, a demonstration we did la uh, last fall to show this concept. Okay, let's take a look at the clip. Now we're gonna demonstrate our guardian system. We're gonna emulate what happens when a driver falls asleep. Guardian can tell by using a camera that's part of the dashboard. The camera can even see through sunglasses in order to see what the driver's eyes are doing or if their head is moving into a position that indicates they're not paying attention. So Ryan, whenever you're ready, why don't you go ahead and pretend to fall asleep. And now Guardian has stepped in. It's driving the car for you. And now it will offer at some point to give it back to you. Why don't you go ahead and take it now? One of the most frightening things that can happen on the highway is when a car in front of you switches lanes to avoid debris you have very little time to react because your view is blocked by the car in front of you. We have sensors that can see significantly better than a human driver can see. The Guardian is going to take over where a car switches lanes in front of us in order to avoid debris. Here that car switches lanes, Guardian decides we have to switch lanes also and we avoid having a crash. Now Guardian has offered to hand back control and Ryan has taken control back of the car. So today you've seen demonstrations of two basic technologies that the Toyota Research Institute is doing research on. This is all part of PRI's work to eventually build a car that can never be responsible for a crash, regardless of what the driver does. One thing I'll say about that is we added a second steering wheel to the car on the right-hand side, and you might say, if the goal is to get rid of the steering wheel, why did we add a second steering wheel? But we wanted to be able to experiment with this human interaction while still having a backup safety driver. So it's really, we're just sort of trying to explore the space of this different styles of interaction. So it's interesting, and those, those technologies look so incredible and so promising, but I think that there's a lot, it looks like you've written down the word transition. I wonder about mm -hmm. that too. Debbie, your perspective, there's, uh, it seems like there's all different kinds of technology that could be deployed or are being deployed or going to be deployed. What's your perspective on kind of that, how, what, what, how we're gonna get there? Yeah, so I think this is a really exciting time. I think the technology that we see in the auto industry is going to evolve more in the next 10 to 20 years than it has in the last 100. And so I think we're on the cusp of something really exciting. From a public health perspective, though, we lose more than 100 people every day in the U.S. on our roadways. This is an epidemic that we need to be addressing, and technology can really help us solve some of these long-standing problems. And so I've got a slides, um, a couple of slides, if you could pull those up for us. Um, so really our, our question is, how do we get to zero fatalities when it comes to the roadways? Is it possible? What's it gonna take to get there? And can technology be a catalyst to make that happen? And you've heard uh, Peter and John talk about different levels of automation. And so for those who are not familiar with the SA or Society of Automotive Engineers levels of automation, level one is really where we are today. And level four and five are those fully automated vehicles where you can think about 
um, no driving, no steering wheel, no brake pedal. But we have a long way to go before we get to full fleet penetration of level four and level five. Jay really talked about it. We're not gonna have these in our garage uh, as a consumer anytime soon. There's a lot of irrational exuberance when it comes to that we're gonna have fully automated cars. Um, so let's talk about what some of the challenges are. If we can move to the next slide. When we talk about the opportunities that we see with these vehicles, they don't come without challenges. Anytime we level up or we change or we do something different or we have new technology, there are going to be things that we're going to have to deal with. Some of those are known and some of those are unknown, uh, depending on where we are in the kind of lifetime of rolling out that technology. So the first one is really about feature inconsistency. And so we look across makes and models and brands. In California, there are over 50 uh, different companies that have applied for operating authority to test automated vehicles. They're not all doing it the same way. There is no single standard. Even when we talk about our large uh, OEMs, our large auto manufacturers, they do things differently. They have different warnings. Some are haptic, some are visual, some are audible. Which ones are best? How do we make sure consumers don't get confused? Performance standards, the technology is evolving much faster than the regulatory environment can keep up with it. And so we don't have set standards for how things should operate and how they should interact with the driver. Validation, even higher levels of automation require human beings to validate them. And so how do we make sure that we don't have errors or in introduced errors into the design uh, or the programming of these systems? Um, the human-machine interface, this has been a long-standing issue when we look at highly automated environments, whether you're talking about nuclear plants or aviation, you've got to keep the human being in the loop. And so understanding what is going on in that environment, because our cars are starting to look more and more like cockpits uh, these days, do people understand the features? University of Iowa did a study, 40% of drivers have been startled or surprised by something that their car did. So how do we keep the human being in the loop so that they're educated, they know what's going on, and they don't become over-reliant on the technology? They, they begin to trust it, it works really well, so then they get bored, they get distracted, they do other things. And then there's a lots of conversations about other challenges, whether it's cyber, um, whether it's data protection, and I know we're gonna get into some of those things a little bit later, but this is a brave new world. There's a lot going on, and there's a lot of things that we're gonna have to deal with as we take advantage of this. But what's the benefit of all this technology? And if we could jump to the next slide, I would say it's safety, lives saved, lives saved injuries prevented. And when we talk about those 40,000 fatalities every year on the US roadways, how do we get to zero? We've worked really hard to change human behavior. We're still the same Mark I human being that we've been for a long time. We're still making some of the same mistakes. 30% of our roadway fatalities involve alcohol-impaired drivers. We know this is a problem. We know we should be doing things differently, but we're not. And so when we look at technology, how does technology help us break through some of those long-standing problems and protect us sometimes from ourselves? Um, lives saved is what the technology is all about when it comes to organizations like the National Safety Council. 
We don't want people to die on the roadways. We're losing too many and so many more are injured and have life-altering, debilitating injuries. We've got to do better. So um, thanks very much. Talking about some the, this transition, and it sounds, yeah, the technology is amazing, but it does sound a bit complicated and confusing. Yeah. And I'm wondering for, for you, if you could, uh, and maybe John, this is for you um, first, what, what do you see? Is this going to be a gradual adoption of, um, of all these new technologies on the right? Or is there, become, is there going to be some sort of um, swift change at some point where everything switches over? I think it'll take a while, um, and I think there have been studies like new technologies like electronic stability control. Even once it starts being offered in the marketplace, it can take a very long time for, uh, for a large fraction of vehicles to have that technology. And another thing I think is that um, people love to drive. People mm -hmm. are good at driving, and, and, some, and uh, I, it, it's hard for me personally to imagine a future where there is no human driving. Like I think. Uh, that we that we're going to have to have the mix of highly automated and human-driven vehicles, and 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 that's uh, going to be around for a very long time. I always kind of assumed that it was going to be illegal to drive at some point. That's <laughs> <laughs> we can't afford the luxury of letting humans drive. Yeah. Well, but why why wouldn't we? Why 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 will humans dri drivers be needed if these technologies can be perfected? Well, I've had uh, folks in Silicon Valley say, well, people used to ride horses on the roads, and now they go to horse farms for doing it for pleasure. They'll go to racetracks, but I. I don't know, I think there's something uh, emotional and in our psyche about the sort of connection with the machine that we have when we're driving that I think, like I love cars, I, I love um, driving, and I think a lot of people are not gonna wanna give that up. And the challenge I think is to bring the safety in to both the human-driven and the fully automated regimes. That's where I feel personally. Um, Peter, I wonder if, uh, what's your perspective on that? Is, is there gonna be a, a, a gradual, uh, uh, shift to this or will something happen dramatically at some point in the next few years? Yeah, I, th I think there's going to be a process of kind of connecting the dots. You know, we've got these different trials going on in different parts of the country. Um, we need to learn from some, something from that and then be able to build it out on a bigger scale. And we, we need to think about some of the early adopters and certainly one seems to be uh, shared mobility services, ride-hailing uh, services like Uber and Lyft. So, that uh, obviously there's a clear economic case there for them. Um, so there's a big push to, to go in that direction. Um, I think uh, the infrastructure side is important because we need to think about where these each type of technology can operate safely. And I think we've got a long way to go there. We heard about and we talked about the five levels of automation vehicle but maybe there's something equivalent that needs to be developed on the infrastructure side so that we, we've got some idea about where these, given that incredible diversity of the capability of these vehicles, uh, we need some consideration of how the infrastructure works. And unless we have some data, um, we're not going to be in a very strong position. And I think over the past two or three years, we've seen there's quite a reluctance to, on the part of manufacturers to share data. So that's going to be an important issue. Well, let's talk about that. We'll go, sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to say we ought to bring regulation and public policy into the discussion because I mean, how are we going to capture that data and how are we going to monitor improvements on the safety front and what criteria should be set that a vehicle needs to meet 
before it's unleashed on the roads without any human driver in the vehicle uh, at, at, at all. You know, California is, I think, doing a first-rate job in, in, in obtaining the kind of transparency that's needed to track what's happening with each of the companies that have permits to operate in that state. Uh, but we have a long way to go. Should it be a private sector initiative to help establish at least minimum standards? You know, we almost need uh, a medical kind of checkup before a vehicle is allowed on the road. It needs a vision test to make sure it's going to see what it's supposed to see, unlike that, uh, that uh, Uber uh, vehicle in, uh, in, in Arizona. The, resulted in a, in, a, in a fatal crash. We need a mental acuity test to make sure that it knows how to, to process and analyze data and anticipate future actions. And it needs a neurological test to test its reflexes. And we, uh, the reason you test on public roads is to, is to learn and improve performance. So we sure don't want to wait until we're nearing perfection, but there ought to be, before you unleash these vehicles on the road, but there ought to be some minimum criteria that are agreed upon that'll set a baseline that all vehicles need to meet and all provider, all developers need to meet. So is, are we all test subjects in, this, in a giant experiment? I mean, what, what, Debbie, what's your perspective on that? Well, I would say I, I agree with Jay. It's a little bit like the Wild West mm -hmm. out there right now. Um, we are, we've mentioned that over 50 companies have applied for operating authority uh, in California. So there's a lot of people who are doing things. They're doing things differently. They're not all transparent about what they're doing. Um, and in fact, only two companies, Waymo and GM, have filed with the U.S. Department of Transportation information this voluntary disclosed information about operating autonomous vehicles on the U.S. roadways. But even when you read that, um, there's, there's not a whole lot of proprietary information that's contained in these because they're public documents. And so to some extent, they read much like marketing uh, materials that they are going to be safe and this is what they're focused on. But we've seen in many situations, particularly in TSB investigations, uh, that there are some challenges and we need to really start drilling down to address this. The problem is the regulatory framework that exists today isn't ideal for an environment where technology is evolving so rapidly that regulations cannot keep pace with what's going on. And if we try to put the technology that's coming out into the current regulatory framework where it takes three to five years to get a regulation passed, that technology is going to be obsolete and we're going to be capping what the potential of it is. We've got to find out how to do this differently. Is someone drop the ball in terms of regulation? What, what needs to be done right away? You know, I'd say Jay uh, really raised a good point. How do we create a voluntary environment? But I would say the challenge is there's so much self-interest here and uh, there's so much competition that I think a lot of the manufacturers don't want to engage in an environment where they're setting, you know, minima or baseline standards or, um, you know, sharing what's going on. Because they're doing things, they're doing it differently, and there's not a tremendous amount of transparency at this point in time. And I'd say from a public perspective, that's the challenge. We're used to a regime and a world where we said you have to do things in this format, they have to perform to this standard, you have to show these test results. 
we don't have anything right now that really fits what the model is, mm -hmm. and we're not evolving fast enough. We're giving people voluntary guidelines, but as I mentioned, only two companies have submitted uh, to the Department of Transportation their, their program. And again, there's not a lot of information even when they do submit. And so I think we've got to figure that out. Well, let me just take a step back in a bit. I mean, is everyone in agreement here that, that um, these autonomous vehicles are going to save tens of thousands of lives, you know, basically get to zero, as you're saying? Are we, are we really going to see that where lives, people are not dying on our highways and our roads? Is there, Jay? Uh, no, um, not anytime soon. Uh, and in fact, during the transition period to autonomous vehicles, the situation might actually become worse in the sense that the more highly automated driver assistance uh, systems are integrated into the car, the more complacent the driver becomes. And when it's time for the driver to take back control, the handoff from the, from the machine to the human driver, uh, they're not prepared. They, they, don't, they, they lack the situational awareness. And the more sophisticated the vehicles become, the more difficult it becomes to take back control because they've taken so much uh, and, there's, and, you, and you've lost your situational awareness. So it may actually get worse before it gets better. I think we are going to see a significant, over time, reduction in fatalities and injuries, but there'll be additional fatalities, probably fewer than, than the, the number that were reduced. That is, people will be killed and injured by autonomous vehicles who never would have been without autonomous vehicles. There'd be different kinds of, and causes of crashes. But over time, the curve will go downward for sure. Yeah. So, so John, are we right to focus on the regulatory <coughs> issues, but also on this, the idea of the handoff, this kind of uneasy balance between humans and the, the self-driving technology? Well, I, I think a lot about the handoff issue for sure. I mean, in technology, there's something called Amara's Law, which is that we tend to overestimate the impact of a technology in the short term and underestimate it in the long term. So if you think about the internet and, and cell phones, uh, mobile devices and so forth. And so um, the, the, um, the hope I have is that we can deploy some of the highly automated features in a way that we gain the experience of being out there in the world, but more uh, it, under a human-driven paradigm so that we're augmenting the driver but also capturing the data. We're in the age where he or she who has the data wins in, in the sense that that's why the comp competitive forces to, to keep the data proprietary is that modern machine learning algorithms sort of thrive on data. And so the challenge is how do you deploy the systems in a way that you get a safety benefit? Um, and, and I certainly would not like to see an increase. Mm -hmm. I want just to drop. I sure. want to yeah. have it go down. And, uh, but that ultimately the experience and learning and data that there, there is this more dramatic improvement in the longer term. Um, I, maybe this is for, for Peter. I'm wondering what, the, what kind of, uh, mis are there misconceptions out there among the American motorists about what these technologies are gonna do for us or do we kind of have a, a reasonable understanding? Uh, no, we don't. I don't think we do have a reasonable understanding. I think surveys show that uh, folks don't really understand what these technologies are. That's not surprising because I tried to say earlier, there's a huge range in, in these capabilities. What are we talking about? Where in the infrastructure are we talking about that operation? So, um, and, and the surveys show that less than 50% of people really want to have to ride in a driverless vehicle, so-called. 
So um, got a lot of long way to go, and, and we tend to think that um, you know education can go a certain in helping this situation, but really it's going to be individuals' experience, direct experience with automation that's going to uh, kind of over. And so, for example, if they have a positive experience with ride-hailing services that are automated, then they kind of naturally will learn to appreciate that. They don't want to understand the underlying technology. They just know that they like it. And now we've always said that people, this technology can't be forced on, on consumers or on the community. People not only like it or accept it, but love it. Otherwise, this is such a huge transformation, it will never happen. So that's the challenge right now to increase the love for this technology. One thing, oh, do you want to say something? Well, I wonder about, um, you talk about the, the importance of all these different data streams and these, all these, these autonomous vehicles are going to be producing lots and lots of data streams and privacy must be a concern. Is, um, what, are the, what are the threats that, that, that self-driving cars uh, what, what they might bring with these data streams. Who, who gets to own the data? What could be, what nefarious purposes could, the, could, be, uh, could people find for the data? Well, I mean, uh, uh, imagine yeah. what Putin could do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, would, I would offer um, uh, uh, that um, Alan Mulally, who headed up Boeing and then Ford, said the data will set you free. And I think when it comes to safety, and again, you know, I want to focus on this area of how the data can help us, it is so important for there to be a process for great data sharing because we learn so much. You don't have to have the fatal crash to learn. You have a lot of close calls that you can learn from too. And when we look at experiences, say for example, in the aviation industry, that sector in the 1990s came together, manufacturers, labor, uh, operators, um, regulators, and they said, let's share data in a way that we can see what some of those outlier events are and what some of the big trends are and so that we can find out not just for your airline or this type of aircraft but what do we need to pay attention to and so when we're talking about automated vehicles on our roadways and the technology we don't necessarily have to have one company learn the lesson and then the other five haven't learned it because we're not sharing it and they keep making the same mistakes We've got to find a way from a safety perspective to have data be shared, and we've got to make sure that it's available and accessible to investigators, uh, to insurance companies and law enforcement, people who might need access to it to understand what happened. Um, and I think that's where we could really benefit from having um, some requirements or, from, or, or standards. Right now, many people are relying on the manufacturers to give them the Rosetta Stone mm. to be able to download data to understand what it is. And so if we live in that environment where everything's secret, we are not going to be learning lessons until it's after the fact, until it's too late. There's a lot of value in predictive uh, data sharing. Yeah. Think of the model of the uh, um, FDA in, in drug um, licensing. Um, the manufacturers share proprietary data and it's kept within the agency. So the, um, the transparency doesn't have to be public at the level of data. It can be closely held. 
That's right. And yeah. like a, as an example, with the, when I worked at the NTSB for 10 years, yeah. we did have requirements for sharing of data with us as we were doing the investigation, but we also had requirements to protect it and mm -hmm. so that it wasn't shared. And I think that there are instances where there's tremendous benefit and being able to create an environment that's safe and that doesn't create a competitive threat for people, mm -hmm. but it does give us those safety benefits that we so desperately are gonna need as this becomes a more widespread issue. Again, we don't want Tempe to learn a lesson or Pittsburgh to learn a lesson in San Francisco and you know other municipalities not to have information. And so what's happening right now is a lot of small test beds and a, small, a lot of small environments that we're gonna try to deploy nationwide. We, we need to have a broader understanding. What's your perspective, someone who's involved with uh, the industry? Well, Toyota. well, let's see. Um, so I'm also an MIT professor, so I'm on leave <laughs> with Toyota Research Institute. And the MIT professor and me, um, uh, you know, like uh, the, the, the um, d data really dri that drives research is in the public interest, you know, is just really uh, important to me. I think there, there, there are certainly complex issues with data sharing and proprietary nature. Um, you know, part of me, um, I kind of think if, uh, you, you can imagine if um, one thing is the data doesn't have to be about negative incidents. You could have sort of, in effect, you know, um, from from situations where the the technology intervened to good benefit to sort of harvest that information. Also, the kind of near misses that you mentioned, um, and and also maybe individuals can donate their data if they choose in the interest of the public good. In the same way, we might have you know organ donors. We might have people that you know are willing to give up information for the benefit of society. Maybe, maybe there's a new way to think about this sort of this public health conversation because the benefits could be just so great if we think really how compelling the problem is and we just don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. well, I just want to say something, we're talking about pub public health, which is why we're here, of course. What, you know, it's easy to think in terms of reduction in fatalities and injuries, but what about downstream or unintended consequences? I mean, we were talking before about you know, workers, drivers will be displaced, professional you know, truckers and so on will be displaced in some ways. What are the things that you all worry about more, you know, n not fatalities and injuries, but public health issues downstream from the adoption of these technologies? Anyone? Yeah, well, I, you know, there are over three million professional drivers in the U.S., truck drivers, taxi drivers, et cetera, who stand to lose their jobs over the longer haul, or at least their successors do. And so there's, there are going to be dislocations. There's, there are issues of, of um, there, there are benefits and costs on, on, the, uh, air, on the pollution side by having fewer cars on the road, potentially. Uh, there could be benefits. But on the other hand, if you've got all of these, these automated vehicles continually circling around waiting for someone to call for a ride, we could actually end up uh, along with the mix of regular vehicles, we could end up with more cars on the road and the problem could get worse. You know, the only, one other thing I wanted to throw in, 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 in into the, quickly into the equation, um, how many lives could be saved simply through the widespread adoption of highly automated uh, driver assist systems? Could we get 50, and, and with a marketing campaign to get everyone to want to use them and to pay for them in the, as part of the cost of the car. Without, forget about autonomous vehicles, just highly automated driver assist systems. Could that get us 90% of the way there or 40 or 10 or 
Who's done that analysis? I haven't seen yeah. it. So there, there actually are some great studies okay. uh, in this space. And uh, Carnegie Mellon in 2016 uh, released a study that um, if we had automatic emergency braking, lane departure warning, and blind spot monitor on every car, we could save 10,000 lives a year. Okay. The Insurance Institute for Highway Safety uh, also uh, had an estimate about 10,000 lives saved per year with those three technologies plus adaptive headlights. So people mm. have looked at these technologies that mm. are commercially available today, yeah. but the challenge is, and for many years, they've been options on higher level uh, trim lines or vehicles that are at a higher level. And so we don't want safety just to be for those who can afford it. Right, sure. We want safety to be for everyone. And I would say, I'll just share a personal experience with you. I have a uh, 2005 uh, minivan and my husband and I went to go replace that just a couple of months ago. We have three boys. It's a very dirty, stinky <laughs> Toyota or a 2005 <laughs> minivan. Um, but um, we, we were looking at actually getting a used car, um, a used minivan, 2015 or 2016 right. model year, um, just because of the price point. And um, when we went and we test drove the vehicle, it didn't have all those safety features mm. that I've been talking so much about. Yeah. And I said, oh my gosh, this is like, I've got to hold the mirror up and say, am I willing to go for the 2018 model, which has standard on every trim line, some of right. these technologies. Yeah. And I said, you know what? I have one 17 year old that's driving. I've got a 15 year old that's a, you know, learner's permit, and I've got a 12-year-old who's going to be right behind him. These technologies are going to be the things that'll save my kids' lives. And you know what? It was, it was one of those moments where we say, how do we accelerate mm -hmm. this technology into the fleet, mm -hmm. and how do we turn it over faster? Mm -hmm. Because cars now actually last longer mm -hmm. than they ever have. So each decade, they're lasting about a year longer. So the average age of a car in the U.S. now is 11 and a half years old. And so those, mm -hmm. those. Um, uh, kind of curves for adoption yeah. are pretty well understood. And so for electronic stability control, which is a technology yeah. that is awesome and has saved thousands of lives, it was mandated in all vehicles in 2012, we're still not going to get full penetration of the fleet having electronic stability control for decades. So is that, are we going to have this in, a growing rich poor divide in terms of the vehicles that are out there on the road? Is that what's going to happen? Is it going to I think the good news, I, I think that you're seeing some of the democratization of the technology that like self-driving is sort of defining this frontier of really ambitious, there's this race to get better and better sensors. And that makes the kind of um, the, the sensors that can provide these near-term benefits actually have become cheaper. Your know, cameras are cheaper, radars. And so you can see, um, you know, b being more pervasive in fleets, including the lower cost vehicles. I just one quick question, and then we have more, have some questions from the audience. But I just wondered, um, you know, I assume everyone's talked about the trolley problem here, and then the idea of these, the uh, the software is going to be programmed to determine who's going to be saved in terms of when an accident situation arises. Will will some cars protect the, the drivers, and other cars will be protect other people, or will all will all will the, the ultimate will the, will the algorithm become? kind of similar across all the models. Are different cars going to have different weights to who gets saved in difficult situations? Maybe that's for you. Do we have an hour? Uh, <laughs> so so I, I think the goal is to avoid any sort of um, A versus B situation that the, the car should have. My, my aspiration is to have enough foresight to just stay out of those situations. You know, um, But it's a, it's a really difficult and, and 
very difficult question to talk about as many dimensions. Okay. All right. Well, let's go then do something a bit easier. We go to some uh, questions from the. Do you want to add to that? Well, I would just say, you know, one of the challenges now, as we talk about outside, inside the vehicle, we're actually doing a really bad job protecting our most vulnerable road users that are outside of the vehicle, and so. Uh, pedestrian fatalities in the U.S. went up by 10% last year. And so when we talk about these technologies, it's not just about inside the vehicle. It's about pedestrian detection and being able to stop or slow down when you detect a pedestrian, not just a car. And so I think it's important that we keep all those things Mm -hmm. kind of on the plate and say, this is what we expect from this technology. That's not just going to recognize a vehicle, but it'll recognize a motorcycle, a bicyclist, uh, or a pedestrian. Um, I just read this morning in the local paper here that there was a teen driver who had a learner's permit who ran over and killed a woman, hit uh, another couple and killed their dog, and they're both hospitalized. This was in the paper here this morning, and after the crash, they hit a building after that. Um, They determined that they, a drug recognition expert, you know, said that they were likely impaired by drugs. When we talk about advanced technology, it's to prevent those kinds of mm-hmm. things, those catastrophic events. Um, and those three individuals that were struck in the pet, they were pedestrians. Right. And so that's the kinds of, of deaths that we're seeing on the rise. Mm-hmm. What can we do better? Right. Yeah. All right, so make some questions to audience. We yep. have a lot of questions, but while we're on that topic, I'll ask one that came in about it. Um, the death of the pedestrian in the Uber accident really raises ethical issues about risk and safety. How will these cars of the future make the right choices on the road, and how much can we trust their decision-making process? How can they be programmed, for example, to make the right choices morally about who to protect in a crash? This is more of a question about moral choices that the technology would make. I I would say, um, you know, I think sometimes when we ask a question like this, human beings, like the situation that I just described, they don't make good choices. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we talk about, you know, John talking about the A-B choice, when we're in that split-second decision and trying to figure out whether we hit the car in front of us or whether we change lanes and, you know, maybe we don't know if there's a car over there that we're going to hit, Um, or run off the road and we are not really great in the split second making those choices and a lot of times those aren't active decisions we're not actually going through the the waiting we're making a reaction and so I would say it's really important to make sure the design and the programming is correct but I'd say compared to what Um, and I'd say right now if you compare it to human beings who drive under the influence of alcohol or drugs or get fatigued, or drive distracted. Sometimes I think when we are asking these questions, we're not actually holding the mirror up and saying, what good choices are we making and how do we incentivize human beings to make better choices? Not just in the split second, because getting in the car when you're impaired by alcohol isn't a split second choice. That's a decision that gets made before you you even start the car, Um, and so, um, I, I would say, you know, that's not about the programming and the design technology, but I think that question is inherently un, unfair in many situations because human beings do not make good choices when they get behind the wheel. That's why 94% of fatalities are attributed to human error or human choice. 
And so I, I think we're hoping machines will be better than us and they will be able to discern some of those situations in a, uh, in a more hierarchical decision-making process than we do. I'll, I'll turn it over to a technology expert, well, though. <laughs> well, let's see. It's a, it's a challenging question, but I think some of the benefits that um, a machine can have a greater context in terms of, say, driving on a windy road, uh, that there can be this almost foresight in prediction and using the sort of the history of many cars that drove on that road before to sort of say, basically, the car is going too fast and this try to slow down before those situations happen. Um, in general, you know, we strive to get um, really strong detection performance with very few false alarms, and there are statistical ways to characterize how our algorithms work. And I think all um, manufacturers, groups doing this, are aspiring to to extreme to get really strong performance, uh, with the ultimate aim of the using almost kind of superhuman perception, very long sensing range, uh, very accurate discrimination, uh, to to try to avoid getting in those situations, in a sense. Great, thank you very much, thank you. Um, here's a question from Dana Plude, Deputy Director at the National Institute on Aging. The question of self-driving cars comes up frequently and seems to hold promise for allowing elderly adults to maintain independence for daily activities. But how reliable are such vehicles in inclement conditions, rain, sleet, snow? And are such vehicles operational in rural areas where many elderly live? My understanding is that autonomous vehicles follow routes that are previously mapped out, which seems unlikely in non-urban areas. Um, and we've also had a similar question about the promise of the technology to help people with physical disabilities, um, if you could address that. Hmm. Well, let me <laughs> tell you that the, the challenge in rural areas where a lot of elderly people reside is that the business models of, of uh, fleets of automated vehicles may not support their availability uh, in smaller villages because there, is, there aren't the right, uh, adequate number of, of, of customers. So there's going to be an issue about urban versus rural and the reach of these, uh, the, these uh, systems. I wouldn't, uh, the, the question is kind of worrying about um, some of the current concerns about inclement weather and snow on the roads, et cetera, all of that will be addressed over time. Uh, and so a lot of that will go away as an, as an issue. So I would, if I were him, I wouldn't worry about it yet because the vehicles aren't here yet. And it's the kind of thing that's being worked on. Whether maybe in rural areas, people will I want to continue to own self-driving cars and urban areas will just use fleets. Is that what, what is likely to happen? I mean, not. Well, I think you can distinguish between the mobility as a service market versus the privately owned vehicle market. And they, and they do have very different sort of cost sort of structures and not to get like any, I don't really know like the specifics, but you can imagine that in a, in a mobility as a service system, say down here in Boston, you could have more expensive sensors you could, and, and have a higher utilization rate. And the hope is in the same way that the active safety technology trickles down to the, to the lower cost vehicles that hopefully the sensors will get less expensive and so forth that you would get the technology into privately owned vehicles. But certainly weather is a concern and you can imagine a model where the systems are available when the weather's um, more favorable and, and just not, a, not available on a day when it snows and, and that somehow people um, adapt to that. 
Great, thank you. I'm just going to take one more from online. We have a lot of questions, and you can see them all if you go on our chat. I want to have our audience have a chance to ask a question, too. Um, but this one's for Peter from Jeff Larson. Peter, <laughs> what is industry doing to, quote, increase the love, unquote, for these technologies? Jay Winston went to Hollywood to increase the love for things like designated drivers. Shouldn't industry be doing something similar now? I think this is a question for both of you. But we start with Peter. Yeah, that, thank you very much. Um, well, I think, as I said before, I think in direct experience kind of going to make the difference. So if these technologies are and the high levels of automation are going to be rolled out in mobility services, in the matter that was just discussed about having access to these these kinds of vehicles and technology. Um, and I, I want to give some credit to the so-called smart cities movement. And we've, I think it's one of been, been one of the exciting things that's happened over the past couple of years. And if you look around the country at the smart cities programs, a lot of them are very concerned about uh, disadvantaged people not having access to hospitals and so on. And a big part of these early deployments is trying to address those issues. And, um, you know, if you look at it, one of the early adopters is low-speed uh, passenger shuttles, low-speed, maybe less than 20 miles an hour, um, that are able to carry a number of people on a, on a fixed route kind of thing. So um, there is quite a bit going on there, and it's that direct experience that's going to change people's impression of automated vehicles. Yes, but I think in, a, in addition to that, education and awareness and the modeling of behavior, uh, which we were able to achieve through the designated driver campaign, 160 primetime TV episodes had the characters choosing a designated driver to model that behavior. That Imagine Big Bang Theory uh, today. They finally go out and get a new car, and what they've gotten is a highly automated car, and they're dealing with those systems, et cetera. You can start a lot of conversation. You can generate news coverage out of that. You combine that with the marketing efforts of the industry as a whole, and you can help to move the needle in terms of public acceptance and excitement and love, not only for the shiny object of the autonomous vehicle, but also for the uh, highly automated driver assist systems that are available today. I think we shouldn't lose track of where we are today. We gotta still be hammering away at drunk driving and distracted driving and drowsy driving and the like. Thank you. I think we're running out of time, but audience, our panelists will be here, and you can come up and ask them questions after the event. Okay. So, so I wonder, uh, before we wrap up in a couple of minutes, I wonder if we can go around and each of you can say what your greatest fear is for this new technology and what your greatest hope is. Debbie, you want to go first? Um, my greatest hope is easy. That's lives saved. Um, my greatest fear is... Um, that we won't roll it out in a responsible way and that will result in setting us back so that the technology isn't adopted uh, to save those lives. I'm, I'm with Debbie on my greatest hope mm -hmm. is really that, you know, there's a dramatic reduction in, in accidents and not just for vehicle users, but the vulnerable road users are really important. Um, and, I, and I guess I, 
I have a fear. I mean, I think incidents need to be taken extremely seriously, but um, but we you know, there there could be a fear that if we um, we somehow um, that short-term phase when when the benefits don't fully accrue that we don't keep the long-term of the of the more massive benefits that will come with time in mind. So we have to balance the short and the long-term. Yeah, and I agree with both of you. And I think that a an aggressive, well thought out, comprehensive communications effort will be crucial to bring the public along, so that increasingly they don't overreact to a single crash. Uh, are we overreacting to the to the? I mean, the fatality is a fatality. Are we overreacting to these things that have happened recently? These accidents is that a concern? Uh, I, I I think they're very serious, and and mm -hmm. so I I um, you know I uh, every human life is precious. And, I think uh, we underreact to the hundred fatalities yeah, right. that occur every day on our roadways and right. don't prioritize saving those lives. Everyone heard about the Southwest right. fatality that occurred in aviation. That was the first a U.S. domestic commercial aviation fatality in nine years. Mm -hmm. But yet we kill 100 people a day on our roadways and that's not front page news. Mm -hmm. That's the shame of it. Mm -hmm. um, Peter, your greatest hope and greatest fear? Well, I, you know, I agree with Debbie. I think um, the definitive reduction of serious injuries and fatalities is, is, is really why we're doing this. And I think it's been to the credit of this country that all of this technology has been pursued with that objective. I guess my biggest fear is that the danger is going to remain locked up. Um, we really need a new safety science for airports because it's going to be like aircraft. The crashes are going to be few and far between. How do, we, how do we understand safety for, of highly automated vehicles? It's through the data, so we need to get out. Okay, all right. All right, well, I think we're out of time, so thanks, everyone. That's the end of the, the panel today. Thank all, thanks to everyone in the audience. Thanks special to all of your, uh, to our panelists here and to Peter. And I uh, just want to let you know that if you want to see the on-demand version of the video of this event, it will be posted, I think, by Monday uh, on the forum's website. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.